first lesson in influencing what people think about you is they will not believe ridiculous things. A lot of people, that's their first mistake. They say, I want people to think I'm I'm warm and cuddly, but I've got 20 years of evidence that I'm not. I've seen people try to do this. So the first thing you want to steer with the current, really what you're wanting to do is sort of identify what people already think and align yourself with them. So you're you're not asking people to cross the great chasm, but you are you're finding them where they are and saying, you know what, I'm that thing too is a much easier way to influence how people think. Hello and welcome to the Ronnie Lever Show, where every week we bring you fascinating guests with inspiring stories of success and overcoming obstacles from the world of sports, business and entertainment. To support this channel, please subscribe, turn on the notification bell and hit the like button so that we can deliver you the best content possible. He's an entrepreneur, investor, and business leader, having founded a dozen companies together with his wife. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Prosper Group, one of the top five agencies globally in digital marketing, having worked with dozens of governors, senators, as well as the last three Republican presidential candidates. His company has been named as one of Inc. Magazine's 500 fastest growing companies in 2019 and has won over three dozen advertising awards. He's a family man and a big fan of the Indianapolis Colts from Washington, Ohio to Washington, D.C., joining us live from Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm happy to have him on the show. Please welcome. Here's Kurt Luthard. Woo! <laughs> Ronnie, it's great to be on the show. It's absolutely a Pleasure to have you here. When you're listening to all of that, like listening to your accolades, what you already have achieved, what comes to mind to you? You know, it's uh, it's probably the biggest thing is just the idea that none of this was in my plans when I got going. I thought I would, my goal in life was to, perhaps when I was in high school, was to be president of the United States and then it was to run a presidential campaign. Now I find myself as more of an entrepreneur and business owner, which is a life I've really enjoyed. Wow. That sounds fascinating. So basically, when, when you're talking about of your background when you were a kid, so basically you were always, you thought that you were going to end up in politics. So was this always your passion or what, what was it that brought you there? Well, my, I first had a passion for spiritual ministry. I wanted to be a pastor or a preacher. And sort of later on in my high school years, I realized I don't think that's really my calling. I don't feel the same kind of passion for that. And I got really interested in news and what was happening in the world. And I started following it. It was a pretty nerdy occupation for somebody, a sophomore, junior in high school. But really loved current events and thought, well, I am going to get good people elected first, and then I'm going to get elected. We'll just change the world and make it a better place, which had a lot in common with my desire to be a preacher, you know, but it wasn't until I graduated from college and really started working in that space that I realized, well, I think how I want to help people is to have a consultancy or business of my own. And over time, I've gotten to love the business side more than I liked the political side. And that was a real change in my life was I was more passionate about employing people and creating a better world that way and supporting their families than I was about 
electing the next greatest politician to office. We're going to get into all of that. We're going to dive deep and we're going to first go into the aspect of political campaigns, also building a brand, building a personal brand. And afterwards, we're also going to dive into the business aspect. And to, to touch on the political part, did you, for example, when you were in school, did you run for, for example, a student body president or something? Did you already have your first experiences of a political office back then or, or, or also later on? Or how was that? Yeah. So when I was in college, I ran to be the college Republican president at our university, which was easy because when I got there, there wasn't a college Republicans. So I had to create it and then run. And I was the college Republican president as long as I was at, as long as I was at the university and enjoyed that. And then I ran for office amongst the college Republicans in my state of Indiana and became the state treasurer there and helped a group, a slate of candidates get elected in leadership there. And so I really enjoyed that piece of it in college, just uh, the idea of running and winning. Winning was interesting to me and uh, really got involved. Just, you know, I got a lot of good juice out of running and winning. So talking about winning, what's the secret of winning a political campaign? <laughs> well, you know, I think the secret, if there is one, it, beyond running in the right place as a part of the right party, <laughs> it's, it's understanding that there is a small-ish group of people who decide every election. Uh, there are either people who are inclined to vote for you already, but just don't have the discipline to show up and vote all the time. Or it's that very small group of people who switch parties every two to four years who are persuadable. And where a lot of folks fail in terms of winning as a political candidate is they try to communicate with everybody and they try to win over everybody. And there's a percentage of the population that will never vote for you under any circumstance. And there's a percentage of the population that you've got in the bag. And so they don't need your marketing. It's focusing on those, that, those audiences that really matter in the end uh, and knowing who they are, which can also be a challenge. It, it may not be obvious who those people are at first. And so really digging and learning who are these people is important. So when you're saying uh, focusing on the audience that really matters, like focusing on them that actually that, that's, might be able to be swayed to one side or the other, because right. obviously like there, there are some hard or diehard fans of one side and then some diehard fans of the other side, you're not going to persuade them. So, so you don't even need to bother. So you, you're just going to also service them with your message, the ones that are on your side. But then it's about winning those over that are, that are actually able to be swayed. Is this true for like just for, let's say, political campaigns as, as in the US? Or is this, did, did you also found this to be true in college? Um, in college? Um, yeah, you could argue for that. Sure, there are, um, and it's certainly true when it comes to marketing a business. It's understanding that there is an audience that is your ideal customer, if you will. We would call we would call it that in business, and that's who you need to talk to. It's not these other folks who are fans one way or the other. Um, and it's also somewhat true internationally. Every country is a little different. 
because of the way uh, their politics are. We've done some work internationally. And so it, there's, there are different flavors to it, but when it comes down to it, there are, there is a percentage of the people who really matter and talking to them is what's essential. So you as the head of one of the top digital marketing companies in the world, when it comes to, especially in politics and setting up a political campaign, when you start or when you decide to work with somebody, mm -hmm. first of all, how do you get your clients? And also on the other hand, what's the first thing that you do with them? Yeah. So getting clients in this business is all about referrals and relationships. I've been doing this for almost two decades now. And so I have worked with politicians all over the U.S. I think the last we counted, we've been in 49 different states. And that network of people I've built that I've served well, who refer us to other people, is the probably 80 plus percent of our revenue. It's those relationships that really matter. In terms of what we would first do with a candidate, a lot of it really does come down to understanding their brand, their personal brand, if you will, because a, a, a politician, they themselves are the product. You're selling them to the public. And oddly, many candidates don't really think about their personal brand Or they, they say something that sort of fits with the sort of political issue of the day, but don't really think about how to make it truly authentic or even if it's truly authentic. Uh, the most common examples are candidates who talk about being frugal. They want to save money by, when they get in office by keeping the budget, you know, tight. Uh, and then we find out they're, when, and as it, pertains to say their personal life or the way they run their campaign, they're, they're complete opposite. They're people who spend recklessly or wastefully. And it's because they've not really thought through what is my, what's the brand going to be for my campaign and how do I make that authentic and true? And how do I make that permeate every part of my campaign? And so doing that upfront with a candidate is so important and taking the time to think about it. Many of them just don't. Or they pick something that they think would be popular with other people and it's just not true. Not necessarily because they're lying, but because they, they, they want to appear one way. But they might be better off if they sort of went with their gut in, in some respects. What, what do you understand? For somebody who, who might not be in, in the marketing and personal branding or branding world, what does a personal brand mean to you and why is it so important? When I think of in the business world or maybe in the coaching world or something like that about branding or personal brand, I think it really starts with who are, what is it that's truly special about you that you bring to the arena? And, uh, and everyone has something, something that they've obsessed about, they're fascinated with and they become really good at and they really enjoy and and starting with that and then talking about how perhaps that benefits other people is a good way to think of a personal brand uh and uh it's a good way for a candidate to think about it as well 
And so that's how I kind of think about it and start when I, with that exercise. I once heard that a personal brand is that what other people say about you when you were not in the room. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think when you steer into that, uh, is the best time to win and, uh, is the best way to win is when you, when you pick something, uh, when you think deeply about what is it that I want to bring to the world that I'm passionate about, that I'm good at, that's true about me, uh, is, is the easiest thing to promote because it's just natural as opposed to saying, I want to be about this other thing, but it isn't, it's not who I am. It's not natural. So basically it's uh, like branding when you think that the traditional sense of branding is, for example, you think of Coca-Cola or think of like a very big brand that, or, like a very big company that everybody knows and you, you think like, oh, this stands for that or this stands for this. And and basically it's what do I stand for as, as a person? And this is also nowadays in a social media day and age. It's very, very important also, not just for politicians, but for it becomes more and more important for everybody or also in the workforce when you want to work somewhere and you want to really want to have that job. It's really important to build your own personal brand so that somebody says, Hey, I want to get that guy. I want to work with Kurt. So, so how do you, how do you build your personal brand if for somebody out there who is not a politician, who does not have millions to spend? Yeah. You know, um, Not to, to repeat what I just said, but I think to add an extra flavor to it, uh, you know, when you're standing for something, there's also something you are, if you're for, you're for something means you're against something else. And that sort of, um, bold statement or statements that are bold. I am for being somebody who cares and loves for other people. I am against being mean and hateful and angry, those, that, those kinds of statements, both for and against create an attractiveness that when you put it out in the world, uh, it, it creates a very inexpensive way, if you, if you will, to build a brand. Um, you know, some of my candidates have built brands successfully, not because they paid to tell people what they are, but because they lived it. And then it creates a, a, sort of a, a natural magnetism. One of my best examples was a gentleman uh, who became governor of my home state, Indiana, named Mitch Daniels. He was a very wealthy guy who had succeeded in business, but presented himself to voters as a frugal person. And it, when he first started talking about it, I thought, this is silliness. I mean, he's he made $23 million the year before he ran for governor. How are you going to present yourself as a frugal person, but then he lived it out in such a stark way that he didn't need to market it for people to pay attention. He would, instead of flying around the state, he rented a bus and let people sign the sides of it. He was too cheap to stay in hotels. He would stay in people's homes when he was campaigning. He, wow. he dressed like it. You could kind of, you got this sense that he'd worn this a bunch of times before. And so I think we may put a lot of emphasis when we think about personal branding on, well, I got to have, I got to post on social media a lot. I got to uh, generate a lot of content. And I'm not saying that's bad, but I do think the most important part of it is to pick some, pick something you're for, pick something you're against, 
and speak boldly about it. And some of this stuff would become, will be more natural. Wow. So it's really about um, knowing what to stand for, what not to stand for, basically. Yeah. And being, a, and, and feeling and having the courage to speak for it. Um, and then you have something to talk about online um, and you, you'll know what to talk about and where to perhaps make a statement or not make a statement. It's uh, in a, and again, in the political world, it's when I understand my brand, I know which issues I want to really own and comment about. I know which issues maybe I'm going to ignore and not talk about. And those two things are essential for a candidate. Many candidates feel like they got to talk about everything. I got to I got to be ubiquitous. Uh, today I'm talking about this. I'm talking about that. And it's in some respects, less is more. I've I picked something I'm for. I'm against. I understand who I am. And that's that's the world I want to live in. It's like from a from a company's point of view, it's like also knowing your customer, knowing who you serve, and because not everybody's your cross, your customer. If you if you think that everybody's your customer, then nobody is actually a customer. So basically, right. it's really about finding this sweet spot. Like, what's my niche? What do I stand for? And also to to bring it back on the personal level, it's what are the the, the topics that you are known for? What is what is something when 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 you need a guy? about a certain topic that somebody calls you like, Oh, Kurt, he's the guy that you need to call. Yeah. Like absolutely. Agency and they, they're not going to call you for gardening, I guess. Yeah, absolutely not. Not unless they want to kill their plants. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, one of the things that I heard uh, you saying in an, in another interview of you was that one of the things that your company does is, to influence what somebody thinks about you. So how do you do that? How do you influence what somebody else thinks about you or about a candidate? Well, the first thing you need to do is steer with the, uh, steer with the flow. Um, first lesson in influencing what people think about you is they don't, they will not believe ridiculous things. And I think a lot of people, that's their first mistake is they say, well, I want, I'm, I want people to think I'm, I'm warm and cuddly, but I've got 20 years of, of, <laughs> of evidence that I'm not. And I've seen candidates do this. I've seen people try to do this. So the first thing you want to kind of steer with, steer with the current. Um, and, and then it's that sort of where, what can I, where can I be authentic? People are smart. Uh, people can tell when someone is, Uh, being particularly inauthentic or trying to put lipstick on a pig, which is a very American uh, phrase there. And so it's, it's understanding what is believable, what makes sense. And then I think in terms of, of help persuading the way pe um, the way, how people think about you, it's understanding what pe other people think and aligning yourself with them. And so uh, when you think about how do I want to influence, I want to influence what somebody thinks of me, really what you're wanting to do is sort of identify what people already think and align yourself with them. So you're, you're not asking people to cross the great chasm, but you are, you're finding them where they are and saying, you know what, I'm that thing too, is a much easier way to influence what, how people think. Sounds like you, you, you're channeling. 
Like you're channeling yes. the opinions, you're channeling what they all you think, and then you make it more precise, like more, you, you really bundle it together. Is that correct? Yes. And you're also, and uh, it's sort of that uh, story. Uh, there's a great uh, book called Story Brand. It's the same concept of when you're wanting to influence what people think of you, you're really saying, I align with you. You're the hero. I'm the guide, right? I'm aligning with you as opposed to saying, look, I'm amazing. I want to convince you that I'm amazing. So I'm going to say none of that. That sounds like a used car salesperson. Buy this car. No, everybody's immediately got walls up when you when you when you say that. It's about sort of um, saying, you know, you are a kind, honest, and wonderful person. So am I. I align with this somehow, and some evidence here that is in alignment. Or I'm on your for a political candidates. I'm in your tribe too, or I've been there. So uh, that distinction might seem subtle, but it's, I think, very important when it comes to persuading people. Mm, wow, very fascinating. Because also um, the, the point, and I think it's very important to point that out, what you just said, is that you don't want to position yourself as the hero because you want to make your customer the hero or in, in this term, the voter, your hero, and you're just a guy. You're just a person helping them to get what they want. Because they, yeah. they want to actually, when they vote for you, they want to know, or also when they buy from you, they want to know how much does that help me to transform my life and not like, oh, you're so cool. I'm going to vote for you. I have no idea what's in it for me, but I'm going to vote for you because you're so cool. Nobody's going to say that. Yeah. Well, it's very trite, the comparison, but I think there's a stark comparison in 2016 in the U.S. presidential election between the promise or the slogan that Donald Trump had, which was make America great again. So his promise, you elect me, I'll make America great again. Hillary Clinton's slogan was, I'm with her, right? So Trump's was about, I'm going to do something for you. Hillary's was, you want to join me, I'm with her. And then as she kind of got, she saw Trump could be divisive. She said, well, we can be better together, which was moderately better, but it still was more about her than it was about you. So there's a distinction when you're when you're trying to impact or persuade people. It's saying I'm on your side. I'm doing something for you, uh, not you know you're joining me because I'm amazing. And, and it's a great point because there have been really some great campaign slogans and also some some that were doomed to fail from the beginning. As you were just saying that, I, I just remembered in the '90s there was a there was a campaign slogan from Ross Perot: "Ross for boss." Yes. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, like, okay, awesome. But but would you and and his he was running against Bill Clinton, who said building a bridge to the twenty first century. I yes, mean, that, that's that's basically the same thing as as you were saying in in ninety six uh, in two thousand sixteen with I'm with her, and then compared to Make America Great Again, which was a very clear slogan, and it was very clear that this is the direction where we're going together. Yeah, and. When you are actually working with somebody, are you involved in the campaign building process or, or are you just like, okay, this is the campaign building and you just, you do the social media or what, what parts do you actually cover? So uh, it depends a little bit on the campaign. A really smart candidate gets their team involved, including their digital team in that early formation of the campaign in large part because digital media is going to be their primary mode of communication for most of what is probably going to be a year and a half long 
campaign. So helping us to understand where they come from and getting us involved in that planning is good. Some campaigns though, treat digital marketing like it's an afterthought. So many candidates are very focused on television. For many of that generation, uh, that's what they grew up with. They understand television. They grew up watching NBC, CBS, and ABC, knowing that they drove the conversation. But those days have been over for a decade. So a good candidate's going to bring that digital marketing element in at the beginning, but not all of them do. And sometimes we're just part of a larger team and we have a different role than other campaigns. So it's a little bit different depending on the campaign. I would, and, and, and you're more in that, like I, I would imagine that basically in 2008, the whole uh, thing shifted digital because that was the mm -hmm. first time we really saw a big scale social media campaign. Well, obviously in 2004, it didn't really exist. So that yeah. was the first time that, that this was really a movement that was to be recognized and to be noticed. When did you learn that skill or also with your company and also Did you face some early struggles or some some things where some learnings where you thought afterwards, man, I could have done that better? <laughs> Absolutely. I we started our business in 2006. So we saw in 2006 that digital marketing was becoming a far more important part of a political campaign than ever before. But when we started, we would go meet with candidates and they would say, "Okay, I get it." There's this internet thing. We probably should do something there, like have a website. Maybe we're going to send a few emails here or there, but that's not really a serious part of the campaign. My, uh, I used to go in and do pitch meetings, and the vendors there buying television ads would say things like, likes don't vote, you know, like Facebook likes don't vote. And, you know, uh, and so it was a sort of a dismissive way to say, you just can't persuade hearts and minds on the internet. And so that was a real struggle at the beginning was just educating people to what we can do. Now, when they saw things happen, like President Obama raising so much money online in 2008, then it became, well, you can use email and, and digital marketing to raise money, but you really can't use the internet to win votes. And to some extent, that's still a challenge today. Many candidates see digital marketing as a direct response mechanism. Now, our business itself, we had that we had a cycle where no no one really trusted that digital was going to be very big, and we we kind of struggled through our first few years to really make it happen. And I distinctly remember in early 2010, after being at it for three plus years, my wife and I getting together and saying, okay, this is an election year and here in the U.S. If we can't make it work this year, we'll quit the business and we'll, we'll go and get real jobs, you know, because we weren't making any real money. We, three years, we were just, all we were doing was racking up debt, looking in couch cushions for pizza money and not having uh, the success we were wanting. And then 2010 was a breakout year for us. All that work we did, 2006, 2007, 2008, making relationships, pitching candidates and clients, finally came to fruition as people started hiring in that 
2009-2010 election cycle. I'm sorry? In the midterms. Yeah, in the midterms. And we elected 14 members of Congress that year at our firm. We worked on several big campaigns, raised well over $10 million online, probably almost 20 to, to think about it, which is something we'd never done before. And it was it was a big election for us. And the first time we made a ton of money, we paid all our debts off. It was such a great year, but it was a big contrast from, I think we're going to quit to best year ever in just 12 months time. Wow. We're not done with the campaigning, but I actually want to jump in because you just said something that, that I think is really important because you basically, you bet the farm or you bet the house. Like you, you were really like putting everything in it. What made you persevere? What made you also with your, like, how did you approach it from a mind's perspective? Also, how important was it as a family to stand together and to work on this together? Like, let's start with this, with those two. So I believe in this weird balance between appreciating reality, but also framing it in a way that empowers empowers me and, and keeps me in the right mindset. So, and if I get one, I, I got to balance it out a little bit. So as a business person, um, understanding that I, I've got to be influenced by my numbers and, uh, and by the activities of my staff and by where our projections are for revenue and not lie to myself about how well things are going. But then on the other hand, I have to, I have to understand that the time and effort I am putting into sales and relationship building is going to pay off later. And it was that constant balance in those years that, that uh, kept me going. It was also the little victories. We, it's not that we didn't have any wins during that time. They just weren't scaling as much as we needed them to. We landed good clients and we had big victories, but we, it just hadn't quite hit critical mass yet. So it was celebrating those little victories that kept us going. And also this balance between, okay, we got to recognize things aren't exactly where we want them to be, but we're, we're moving in the right direction and having that sort of balance is essential. As for doing it as a couple, I don't think I would have succeeded if I hadn't done it as a couple. Uh, now, every married couple's a little different. Some of them, the idea of working with their spouse is a nightmare. And for some couples, that probably is. But for Kristen and I, the time it takes to build a business is just, uh, I mean, there's no, there's, it's bottomless the amount of hours you can spend to build a company. And doing it together meant we were also spending time together. So we weren't, you know, suff our relationship wasn't suffering while one of us built a business and the other one had a, another job and was at home wondering where they were at. So when we were doing 80 hour weeks, we were doing those 80 hours together. It also meant we had goals that we were working on together. And that really brought that kind of sort of emotional. I mean, we were, we were spending all of our emotional juice, I guess, on the same thing. And that was early in our marriage. We got married in 04. So we started our business a couple years later And we built it together. And that that has built a foundation that's remained strong for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years uh, next year in August. Wow. Because we, did, we fought it. We built it. We did it together. We know that one of us couldn't have done it without the other. We're also a good balance between, you know, Kristen's even 
Uh, she is, uh, she keeps me on the straight and narrow and I have crazy ideas and visions and she, so that other, that, that we also sort of help with the balance because Kristen keeps my feet on the ground and I keep her, I keep us moving. Wow. That's fascinating. And any, any, any advice for everybody or for anybody who actually would like to work with their, like with their loved one or with their life partner in, in something that you have grown into, because I'm sure that there were also times when it was like, Oh my God, like, oof. yeah, this is, this, is, this is a struggle because you also take, basically you take this, uh, your, your work and also some issues at work, you take it home at the dinner table. Yeah. Well, so rules, rule number one is understanding who's working on what. So my wife and I, often worked on the same thing, but more often than not, I was in sales and selling new accounts. She was early on more in the delivery side, more in the hiring and employee development side. And then that morphed over time. She used to do more of the finances. Then I kind of took over the finances, but we always sort of understood, even if it was informally, who was doing what. So we didn't feel like we were at each other's turf. The second thing that really helped was learning how to fight well. And I think a lot of couples don't do that very effectively. Uh, we try not to get too uh, excited if, if, the, if we aren't agreeing on something. And I think some couples act like that's some sort of tragedy. We think we each bring something unique to the relationship, a unique perspective. And so having a disagreement and realizing it's not the end of the world, but also recognizing how to keep that agreement at the topic at hand and not bring in all this weird stuff. And that's really about not assigning intent in an argument. It's um, Kristen wants to do one thing. I want to do the other where the argument gets nasty and where couples fall apart, both in a working relationship, but also in their marriages when they say, well, Kristen really has this position because she intends something else that she didn't say or assuming something from the past, I'm assigning intent to her. And when I assign intent to her, that's when the, that's when I start feeling crappy. I start telling a story about what's happening. That's not really happening. And that's what makes these fights so tough. And I think a lot of couples don't learn that they, you know, that's why you start fighting over who's taking out the garbage and you end up saying, I want a divorce. Well, somewhere in the process there, Somebody's creating a story uh, in, in that process. So that's been really uh, important. Um, and I think I, we did a really good job. I did both of us of selecting a mate that was really um, aligned. And uh, although we do have disagreements, I find that on the big stuff, we agree. And that's been wonderful in a marriage. Uh, it's beautiful to hear. And also congratulations about that. And I think, You're making a very, very big point here also is that selection is very, very important. Like the selection process upfront to select the right person. Another success factor that you attribute quite a lot to is journaling. Yeah. Um, you know, front, like, tell me, how do you do it? And also, what has it done for you? So I started journaling, not so much as a diary. I know some people journal and talk about what happened during the day. I started it because I try to do my morning quiet time in prayer and I'm a very active thinker. My mind wanders easily. 
And so if I was going to have a prayer and I wanted to concentrate, I needed to write it down because it keeps my mind focused on what I'm doing. So I started it as sort of a prayer journal. And then I often add uh, discussions in my mind. Okay, I'm thinking about something and or I make notes. And then I started mushing that together with my work notes. So I take, this is my journal, but I also take it with me when I do um, work meetings. So I have in here, alternatively, I have, this is my notes from the weekend, but I have part of it. This is a, well, these are notes from meetings. And then I have a section that's just a prayer. And what's been most interesting so getting my thoughts on paper has been great. And I find that writing them down as opposed to typing them up gets them there more. I'm also visual. I draw a lot of diagrams. Here's me drawing quadrants on something. But the unintended benefit of it has been I used to throw them away because I thought I don't need anybody reading now or in the future my unvarnished thoughts about stuff. I just had this nightmare of my kids reading this and being ashamed of me. But my wife persuaded me to keep them. So I put them in a bin and then every once in a while, two, three times a year, what I'll do is I'll go find my bin of old journals and pull something out. And I've got probably 10 years plus of them now. And the biggest distinction I got from them is the things I thought were life and death eight, nine, 10 years ago. I can barely remember today, sometimes even a year ago, something I'm praying about here and I'm saying, God, please solve this problem. Everything's going to hell. You know, I don't know if I'm going to survive. And then I, I pull it up a year later and I think, I forgot about that. And so it's a good life lesson to not get to, uh, is to not judge what's happening in your life with such, you know, doom and gloom because uh, things just are, most of these problems are going to be gone <laughs> in two weeks or two years or 20 years. Um, and that's been one of the benefits of doing the journaling. Wow, that's very fascinating. So, so just to to get my head around it, so every day, like how every morning you you just write down your thoughts, or or how how is that? Yeah. So I learned a habit years ago that I've re-energized today. Is I'll start the night before, and I write down what I'm going to do the next morning. I used to do that in the morning, but then I waste all my time in the morning planning. So I'll, I, the night before, I make my to-do list, maybe a call list. So that's the first thing that's going to be on my paper in the morning. Then I'm going to, when I do my quiet time, my prayer time, I write out my prayers. I do a little bit of, I thank God for the many blessings I have in my life. I remind myself of the attributes of God, things that are praiseworthy. He's a, the creator, the provider, things like that. Um, I'll do some introspective moments of forgiveness, you know, for being selfish or self-centered or, um, you know, being obsessed with my, it's usually selfish stuff. I'll think, you know, sorry. And then I'll have, I, I pray for others. And then my, whatever my top goals are generally, or what I, I'll pray for myself, you know, and so all of that gets written out. Sometimes uh, in great detail, I'll write every word that I'm praying. And then other times I just write little tick marks. Um, so that's in there. 
And then during the rest of the day, I used a notebook for notes from phone calls and meetings. I wrote a couple of things down that you said to me early on. And I'll use that and I'll go back later. I usually, as the, as the notebook gets full, I'll go back and I'll remind myself of something that I wrote down that I forgot to put on my to-do list or whatever. Uh, so it's a pretty, it's mismashy. It's, there's a lot of stuff in here. And if you were to go back later, you'd think, boy, this guy's real ADD. He's praying and then he's writing work notes and then he's reminding himself to call his mom, you know, so it's, it's a lot, but that is very good for me. And I just, my wife has a remarkable, so she writes this stuff down electronically. I still love pen and paper. There's Mm -hmm. something about it that I just love. That's fascinating. And, and I've heard this also in, an, in another episode that one of my guests actually was like every day he was journaling, he was doing it through voice. But anyway, it's, it's just about getting your thoughts out there, getting your, getting what's inside or downloading yes. through you, what is inside and bringing it out. Yeah. I think sometimes we don't, we feel a certain way and we don't know why and taking a moment and saying, what am I thinking up here that, and, and sometimes to your point, just getting on paper. Now for me, that's why I like a written to-do list. Sometimes if I just put it on paper to do makes me feel good. And then I like the psychological victory of scratching something off. I, every time I do it, it's just, it makes me feel good. I have a to-do app sometimes I use as well on my computer and I turned it on so that the bell dings when I check something off, that's like a dopamine hit for me. So <laughs> the crossing off my to-do list is great. And a lot of people like to-do lists are dead. Don't do to-do lists, yada, yada, yada. I still do it. I just keep my very focused on priorities as opposed to just listing off a hundred things, you know, um, that's powerful for me. Wow. Uh, thank you for, for going into detail there. Getting back to, I have one more question about a campaign before I also have uh, another question about the business aspect. Because one thing that we got to talk about is, of course, you also, out of the many campaigns that you have done with your business, you also constructed the, the social media campaign in 2016, the, the presidential winning campaign election. Take us through that. Like when Donald Trump first got elected president, uh, how was the whole presidential election process? How does it work for somebody who does not have an understanding of that? What effort is behind that how much does it take like also how much does it take to spend on that i, I guess it's got to be an enormous amount yes yeah absolutely so um we came on kind of late to the trump 2016 campaign we had worked for a couple of the other republicans in the primary and uh the last republican to challenge you know, to be still alive, I guess, in that time was Ted Cruz, who then lost to Donald Trump in Indiana, our home state. And we had helped run Indiana for Cruz. So we reached out to the Trump campaign already going at that point and offered some technology that we had. And and Brad Parscale, who was the chief of digital for the Trump campaign, said, well, we actually need a lot more than just this technology. He says, I've been running the digital marketing for this campaign for a year through my company. And I only have, you know, three or four people here. And now all of a sudden we're the nominee against Hillary Clinton, who had something like 200 people working on her digital marketing efforts by June of the election year. Can you come down to Texas 
and help us out more broadly. And I remember thinking at the time and saying to him, you need every staff member I have at my business to catch up. And I don't know how to price that. I don't know if we could even do it, even if you're willing to pay us enough money because we have other clients. But my wife and I flew down to San Antonio anyway. And when we got there, he had um, already gotten some new people involved. There was some folks from the Republican National Committee and uh, from a data analytics firm that's now miss now infamous named Cambridge Analytica, which is a whole different full podcast. I thought of documentary. Yeah. And, uh, and we, so we eventually, we essentially helped Brad who turned out to be very capable, put together a digital operation, which he, he was the head of, but there's so many different elements to that. Um, the, probably the biggest during the 2016 campaign was what I would call direct response marketing, where we were looking for and trying to find small dollar contributions to the campaign. So, uh, you know, Trump had donated money to get through his primary from his own fortune. And now for the first time was going to need to raise a lot of money to, to, to compete nationally with Hillary Clinton. And to when we got hired on, he had never even solicited the folks who had signed up on his website by sending them an email because he felt like he should fund it. Um, you know, he had the resources, but now he, he you know, he, he needed to spend, and I think eventually spend something like $400 million. I probably am wrong about that, but it was high. And that's not the kind of money that Trump could sell funds. So he's going to need to ask for people. So we, we helped put together the email campaign that sent emails out to ask for money. Um, there was a separate Facebook campaign going that was very dynamic, trying new creatives all the time to bring in new supporters and new donors. We built a text message opt-in list where people could opt in to get text messages from him that raised quite a deal, quite a bit of money. There's also an app that we ran that people who really supported him could download. They could text their friends, support. So there's, it's a pretty massive operation, which by the end of the campaign, it ended up being 200 people. And there were lots of folks involved in it. Data firms, advertising firms, the Republican National Committee that, that put all that together. Um, and I think if I had lessons or things that I learned from, from that process, um, it was much of the stuff that we thought was a really good piece of marketing turned out to be pretty meh. But the stuff that we tested that somebody, you know, maybe one person on staff did that we thought wasn't all that great turned out to be wonderful. So the one of the lessons was to not come in with too many preconceived notions. I think in the marketing business, whether it's digital marketing, social media, every, we think we're all smart gurus who know what it takes. And we have all the best, most creative ideas that are going to result in what we um, are going to generate results in testing and trying things and not dismissing ideas um, because they don't fit our preconceived notion of what will work and what won't was a, a big lesson there. Um, additionally, letting the data speak for itself, you know, the campaign brought in a lot of new donors and would 
analyze who are these people that are coming in so we could find more folks like them. And what, and one of the things they discovered that they were made fun of at the time in 2016 was that a lot of the donors to Trump were Democrats. And so they expanded their marketing universe to show ads to Democrats. And when that happened, there were a, a spat of news articles saying Trump's campaign is so stupid and so inefficient that they're targeting Democrats that are never going to vote for him. And what we were finding was there was a percentage of that Democratic population dialing all the way back now to the beginning of our conversation. They found that group of people who could be persuaded, who had voted for Barack Obama, and now we're going to vote for Trump. And they just found them because they, they were tracking what was happening in the data. So those were a couple lessons is let the data speak for itself. Also, make sure you're testing uh, you're creative and trying new things. Wow. Very fascinating. And, and thank you also for sharing that. How did that, um, that presidential campaign that, that obviously was a winning campaign, how did that also transform your business? Did it? It did a ton. Uh, you know, Americans spend more money on political campaigns than every country in the world. Uh, by far. And so um, experts in winning American campaigns are in demand all over the world for other politicians who want to be using the most up-to-date technology. So it allowed us to expand international. So we did campaigns in Europe, South America, Central America, which were a lot of fun and interesting challenge for us. What we found in the end, though, As although they were fun and they were a challenge, in the end, it was more profitable to do campaigns here in the U.S. So we don't do much international work anymore, but it, it did really help us to expand. And, and we did some really fun work outside the U.S. It also helped us, the, the learnings from that campaign really helped us to obtain new customers as it, for the midterms in the U.S. So it was really powerful having done Uh, the uh, presidential campaign helped us grow as a company. Uh, it was very, it was a great experience. Wow. Um, I, I, I know you got a busy schedule just to, to be respectful of your time. Let's just uh, at the end, dive into one more business aspect. Yes. Because you also, you also told me up front that, that you, you actually didn't want to uh, like, you never thought about running your own business. You actually thought about, That you were being, uh, that you were going to be in politics, you were going to be maybe working in the White House or something, and and suddenly you you run several businesses. What changed, and how did you how did you get to enjoy the business world? Yeah, well, I again I made the decision to go from working on campaigns as an employee to running a business because it made sense for me at the time. To I it was more of a means to an end. When you're an employee of a political campaign, you're unemployed after every election. And that could get really stressful. And you're constantly changing jobs and changing candidates and clients. And so my wife and I thought, well, let's just start our own business because then we'll just, because we'll be consultants and we'll, we won't lose our jobs every year. We'll just you know, get new clients and customers which was a little naive because instead of losing jobs, we just lost clients <laughs> and it ended up being sort of the same problem. But I just tried it. And I think 
for me, sometimes you don't know what you love until you do it and you try it and the preconceived notions go away. And so I didn't really find what my calling was until I did it. And then I just, over time, love the business side a lot more than politics. And there's actually an, an, an interesting example as I thought about it after we exchanged some emails about it that's happening right now, which is for the last two decades almost, our company has specialized in, in political campaigns pretty much exclusively. And in my mind, I always said, you know what, I'm good at that politics stuff, but I don't know how to help a business sell more widgets. I don't know how to make a realtor more money or, or help a restaurant get more customers. And there's clearly going to be people who are better at that than me. And so I'm not going to try to, to do any work in that business. And then sort of like how I, I started doing a business because I, I wanted, you know, I didn't want to lose my job every year. Just a six, eight, 10 months ago, we started for the first time taking on some, some commercial accounts. And I realized that, that, that me saying I didn't know what I was doing outside of politics was just a story in my own head. And now that I'm actually doing it, I'm finding I love other businesses, making other businesses successful. And it was, and I just tried it. Now I'm finding something else that brings me a lot of joy is doing some commercial and corporate work from our marketing agency standpoint. And at same principle, I just tried something and found that I loved it. Wow, that's that's fantastic. And, and kudos to you, of course, and to both of you, actually. If somebody got inspired right now and if somebody says, hey, I, I want to I wanna work with you or I want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Well, you can find our company website at prospergroupcorp.com. Probably the absolute best way to to reach is just shoot me an email. And I'm Kurt at prospergroupcorp.com. And I'd love to hear from people. Awesome. I will go, I will link everything in the show notes. Any last 30-second thoughts that you would like to leave us with? You know, I think, uh, I imagine a lot of people listening to your podcast are interested in, you know, making, um, they're interested in achievement and success and they want to make their lives better and they're looking for tools and techniques for it. And I think one distinction we didn't talk about, but it's probably so important to me in, in, in something I've learned in the last couple of years, particularly with all the extra time I've spent going to Tony Robbins events, is that if you're working hard to be success so that you can be happy, you've got the process backwards. And I, I came to Tony Robbins conference thinking I'm having a lot of success, but I don't feel very fulfilled. And um, because I kept thinking, fulfillment and happiness, you know, was around the corner. When I make my first a million dollars, I'll have enough money. Then I'll be super happy. Or I'll, when I have so many employees that I can hire a COO, they can run the company. Then I'll be relaxed and happy. And the distinction I've learned recently that I want to share with anybody listening is the value of understanding that you can be happy first. And happiness is not a a destination as much as it is a state of mind. And that's a valuable lesson that'll also help, by the way, help you be successful faster. 
Wow. And happiness is also not a to-do list item that you just check off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for all your wisdom, all your insights. And once again, big kudos to you. Thank you, Kurt Luthard. <laughs> thank you too. Thank you for sticking with us until the end. To make this content even more valuable for you, please leave a comment below and share your thoughts and also share this video with somebody you care about who absolutely needs to see this. Thank you very much. Have an outstanding day and see you next time.